Hey, so a happy new year. What a great way to begin uh, 2019 by coming to the Lord's house to be with your church friends and family and to worship together. Before we um, begin with the message, I want to give a couple of announcements. Our first announcement is Go Honduras. Um, What a great way. If you are sponsoring uh, one of the children in our La Paz church plant, uh, this is a way in which you can go not only serve the whole church, but to visit your child, actually. And that's not um, something that uh, many people can do, but you have an opportunity to do so. If you're in uh, healthcare, whether it be as a dentist or an optometrist, this would be for you. Uh, But if you're not in healthcare in the medical field, but uh, we need you also. So please uh, look into that. Um, If you don't have a sponsored child and say, you know, last year when they did that whole sponsorship, we ran out of kids. I'm ready to sponsor a child. What do I do? Well, as you were walking in, you saw uh, pictures of children on on the wall. We got 46 more kids that need sponsorship. Uh, We're doing it through Compassion International. It's a wonderful organization. So I would invite you to look at the faces and the names and the ages of the kids out there. Uh, On January 20th is when you'll be able to sponsor. Now, if you got your name on the waiting list, You'll, you're going to get um, an early dip on your kids, so, but please look at that. The second announcement is a step um, for 2019. We're sending three teams, and we'll ha- we're going to have an info session next Sunday at the Catapult Chapel after the third service, I, I believe. Um, yes, and um, we're probably going to be sending four teams out next summer, but uh, we'll introduce three of the teams this coming Sunday, so please take a look at that, all right? Thank you. Well, I don't know about how your 2018 was, and I don't know what you are looking forward to in 2019, but like with most people, there, although there were many goods in the previous year, there were some things that you feel like, you know, I, I don't mind leaving that behind. And although you dread some things in the next year, there are some things you're thinking, I'm looking forward to that. There's always things that we're leaving behind and we're looking forward to. And oftentimes we get so busy with the transitions of life, we forget all that we have been given today. And so today I want to take a, a look at a couple of things that has already been given to you that you already have in contrast to, contrast to where you were to realize what a blessing you already have. And so as we begin, I'm just going to break this up into two parts, where we've been and where we are. Where we've been, I will talk about two stories from uh, the Bible. The first story is uh, from Genesis It's a story that if you've been in the church, you know uh, somewhat well. Uh, The very first married couple in the Bible is Adam and Eve, right? We know that, Adam and Eve. And they really had a perfect life. Now, Adam, he was a single man, but uh, God literally, literally created uh, a helpmate exactly for him. He was taking a nap, and God said, you know, you're, you're, you're such a sad basket case. I'm going to find you a wife. In fact, I'll make you a wife. 
And God created Eve for him. And when he first saw her in the, in the Hebrew, he said, wow, man. And so that's where we get wool man from. And he, he was just totally like, attracted to her. And they had a great marriage, it says in Genesis. They were like uh, two people, but like one. Right? They're finishing each other's sandwiches, right? Um, I believe that's uh, the, the line from the movie. Uh, although they make a terrible couple in the movie, right? Um, but they were naked and without shame. They were able to show all of their flaws, and she felt completely uh, accepted by him. She thought, uh, wow, this man thinks I'm beautiful inside and out. Um, and she looked at him and said, he is a spiritual leader. He literally walks with the Lord in the garden. What husband does that, right? Which one of the wives here can say, my husband has his quiet time with the Lord in the garden, right? And in terms of uh, their just finances, they had it all said. They lived in the garden exclusively for them, They had no financial problems, no mortgages to pay, no credit card bills to pay. Their business was tending the garden, saying, hey, make sure that everything is good. And the Lord, oh yeah, said one other instruction, go make a lot of babies, will you? And you know, just go enjoy yourself and make a lot of babies. They had the perfect life. But for some reason, um, Eve began to listen to other voices. And the other voice said, did the Lord really tell you that you can't eat from that tree, that, that fruit? Don't touch it. See, nothing happened. Oh, no, no. If you eat that, you can even have a better life. And so she decided that she would not trust the, the creator of the garden, the Lord who walked with them, and she ate, and her husband soon ate. And what happened to this perfect marriage was a uh, dysfunction came in. She, uh, he blamed her, the Lord, Lord the, the woman that you gave me. And she said, well, the serpent, it's not my fault. And they began to experience shame and guilt in their lives. And so they began to have a dysfunctional marriage. And from there, they had to leave. They uh, They got foreclosed on in their paradise, and they had to leave the garden. And life would be more difficult from that moment on. Uh, Getting a paycheck would be more difficult. Uh, Their marriage would be difficult. Uh, Everything would be more difficult. Having babies would not be easy anymore. It would be painful. And out of that dysfunctional, blaming, guilt-ridden marriage, if you recall, they had a child. His name was... Cain, right? Cain. And Cain would hear stories uh, from his mom and dad. Oh, Cain, if you only could imagine what the garden was like. And mom would tell him, you know, when I first met your husband, he was so sweet. He would listen to me talk for hours and he would enjoy it. Now, all he does is sit in front of the TV. And he would say of her, Eve, she was so beautiful. You know, I I, I hate to say it. I wish she would work out a little bit more. (laughs) Did I just say that? (laughs) 
And, and life was so much easier in the garden. Cain, if you only knew, if I had a different husband, if I had a different wife, if life was different, it was her fault, it was his fault. In that dysfunctional home, uh, they had another child. Remember his name? His name was Abel. So uh, Cain grew up with uh, a dysfunctional uh, mom and dad and a younger brother. And I know that all siblings fight, and especially boys, they begin to have a competitive spirit uh, with one another. And I have a feeling that's just how God made boys, right? God gave, uh, you know, if, if you uh, have a family with two boys, uh, inevitably the boys would think of each other as competition. I can throw further. I can lift, uh, you know, uh, more, uh, whatever it is. And girls probably have a similar competitive spirit uh, with one another, a jealous spirit. Uh, uh, you know, like who's more beautiful, who's more talented, who can attract the, uh, the better, better looking boys. But Cain and Abel took things to another step. And of all the things that Cain would be jealous of, it would be Abel's ability to please God. And that bothered Cain to the point where we find in Genesis chapter 4, this is the the crux, the the result of a dysfunctional marriage, a dysfunctional home, a broken society. As Cain was speaking to his brother uh, Abel in chapter 4, verse 8, it says, When they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel, and remember what he does? He kills him. Uh, the big brother, who is supposed to take care of his little brother, literally kills him. And when, Adam, when God says to Cain, Cain, where's your little brother? He says, I do not know, am I my brother's keepers? Have you ever had a time when you ask your uh, uh, older son, uh, where's your little brother? The older boy says, I don't know. Am I his babysitter? I'm not his dad, dad, right? No, no. Where is he? The ground is crying with his blood. God confronts Cain with his guilt and lays down a curse that from this moment on you will be sought after by enemies. Life would be even more difficult. And it says in chapter 4, verse 16, and you kind of know the story. I'm imagining most of you, the story of Cain. But the last uh, sentence that we hear of Cain in this way is this. Then Cain, listen carefully, went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. This is a sad commentary. So this is... uh, where Cain used to be, Cain was the child of parents who had lived in perfection. Their marriage is perfect. Their finances are perfect. Their walk with the Lord was perfect. They had everything. They had transparency without guilt, acceptance. And then we find their son, Cain, uh, who is without a brother, he killed the one brother he had, driven from his home. He was homeless. He, he is far from the paradise his parents had at one point in time, and, and he's further driven away. 
And, and the, the last thing that we hear about him, he went away from the presence of the Lord. He, he ran from, he was apart from the presence of his father, his heavenly father. Cain lost his brother, his home, his purpose, his, uh, the presence of God. The second story, we, if we turn all the way to the New Testament in, in um, the book of Luke, and last week we had Pastor David Choi speak about uh, this man who eats with sinners. And it's a, it's a great, great um, a message. If, if you didn't get a chance to listen to it, uh, go online and listen to it. It was very powerful. Talked about how the Pharisees, uh, the religious leaders, looked at Jesus who was uh, eating with the sinners and says, wow, you know, how can this man eat with sinners? And, and, and what really what... Uh, David was reminding us is that Jesus, God in the form of a man, uh, welcomes us and eats with us, sinners. But Jesus, in that particular setting, gives a set, uh, a set of parables, stories. The first story is of a man who lost a sheep, and he, he goes and finds his sheep and rejoices when he finds that sheep. Uh, the story of a woman who loses a coin, and she seeks that coin. When she finds the coin, she rejoices. The third story is the one that is most often told. It's the story of the prodigal son, the prodigal son. And it's such a well-known story that even our culture talks about the prodigal. And the story begins this way in chapter 15, verse 11 of Luke. Jesus says, and there was a man who had two sons. And so we were given a particular setting of a family with a father and two sons. And it says that the younger son said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. So it was evident, and we find out even later, that the father and his household was not a poor family. They had enough. Uh, They had land. They had an estate. They had servants who worked for them. Uh, The father seemingly was a loving and generous father. This younger son within the home had a brother had a father, had a home, a a stable situation, but for whatever reason, for whatever reason, we're not told why, the younger son felt like life has to be more than this. I'm not satisfied with the food that my father provides for me. I'm not good enough. I'm I'm not okay enough with my family. I need more or I need something else. Father, would you give me my share of the estates now? And, you know, for those of us who come from the Asian or Eastern culture, you kind of, if you really think about it, how offensive this is. It's like coming to your father, understanding that in the Asian culture that of a parent, when they pass from this world, they would leave their estates to their children, All of these will be yours. The older son, oftentimes, he would get two-thirds. For the younger son, they would get one-third. The older son would get two-thirds partially because his responsibility would include taking care of the aging parents. The younger, and, and this would all happen at the death of the parent. But the younger son says, I can't wait until you die. If you're not gonna die today, 
Give me my share of the estates. Do you understand how offensive, how cruel that is? For, for whatever reason, the younger son decided that he didn't like his parents enough. That he, he, he wanted to sow his wild uh, seeds. He, he wanted to go out there and explore, give me my share of the estates. And it says that the father divided his property between them. And so to a third of his estate, he liquidated a portion of his estate and said, younger son, this is yours. Not many days later, so it, it didn't take a long time, but the younger son decided that with his newfound fortune, he would go, gathered all that he had, and took a journey into a far country and it says that he squandered his property in reckless living. One of the other versions of the Bible says he spent all his money on uh, parties and prostitutes. A young man who came uh, across a large sum of money, he goes away, he travels the world, and he spends extravagantly. You know, oftentimes when you run into people with great deal of wealth, when you run into people who have experienced a lot of success, or when you meet people who have a, a, you know, a, a better education, who you think are smarter than you, you get intimidated. And even as Christians, although you feel like you have the gospel, the answers to life that everyone needs, you are not sure if you can give the gospel to them because they, they look like they have such a better life. I am here to say to you this. Every single person you ever run into in life, every single person you will ever meet, even though they may be at the height of, of the, the money that they have, it, although they may seem like they're extraordinarily successful and, and educated, that each person you will ever meet will all experience a prodigal son moment. It may happen at their deathbed, or it may happen much earlier, but each person will have a prodigal son moment. And this is what happened with the prodigal son. Chapter 15, verse 14, when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need out of personal choices that he had made and, out of and because of circumstances that came upon him, the younger son, who at some point in time thought he had everything, now had nothing. So he went out and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. Now, we may not quite understand the significance of this. Uh, the, the Jews, the Hebrews who understood uh, this particular parable when Jesus was talking to the Jews, especially the religious leaders, understood that pigs are considered filthy, unclean animals. I don't know if there's even an equivalent in the American culture here where an, a, a, an animal is considered so unclean, if you go to Israel today and you try to get a, a pork sausage, like a hot dog, 
You can't go into a McDonald's and get a hot dog or a, bur- or a burger joint. Uh, there are places where you can get a hot dog, a pork hot dog, but it's like a seedy place, like, like going to like a, a bar or something, right? Where only the filthy and the unclean people would go to eat that kind of stuff. The Jews understood that having any kind of dealing with pig is, is dirty, but this man, who had at one point in time was so successful, had sunk so low that he hired himself. He went to work feeding the pigs. But furthermore, verse 16, apparently the job paid so little, and they weren't giving him a per diem, per se. It says, verse 16, and he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and uh, no one gave him anything that he was feeding the pigs with these um, pods, these things that uh, really were only good for pigs, but he was so hungry, he was saying, perhaps this. You think about these two individuals, Cain and this younger brother. At, some po- at one point in time, they had a perfect environment, a loving father, a family, a sibling All that they needed, they had, but something happened in which they felt like this wasn't enough for them. And they rebelled. And where we find them is this. They they lost their home and all the provisions that came with it. They were hungry and destitute, open to the harshness of the world. They lost the connection and acceptance of a brother. Now, Cain literally killed his brother. The younger brother here in in Luke chapter 15, he abandoned his older brother. And by the way, that was greatly offensive also. But most importantly, the biggest loss was that they lost the love and guidance of their father. That they lost the one person who cared for them and and his presence meant all that they needed. This is where all of us begin. And every single person that you meet begin this way. That they are in some way spiritually orphaned. That they are disconnected from the presence of the Lord. That they are brotherless in spiritual way. And they are homeless, at least in terms of a spiritual home. Then we continue. We are told that the good news is that God so loved uh, these orphans, these homeless, these brotherless people that he gave his only begotten son that whoever should believe in him shall shall have everlasting life. That in Romans 10, we are told that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And this is the definition of a Christian, one who is saved. And let me give you three things that you have as a Christian. Someone who is saved that, that you, you kind of forget at times. The, the first thing that you have if you are saved is that you have been adopted. You have been adopted. If you recall, the, the, the younger son, in, the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15, um, we are told that in that as he was going through this struggle, that he comes to his senses. 
And he says in verse 18, I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. See, this is what happened. The younger son who ran, he he took his portion of the estate, basically cursing his father, abandoning his older brother, ran off, lost everything, and he comes to his senses and he says this truth, and which is true. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And this is correct. He doesn't deserve to be the father's son. But he thinks that perhaps if he goes back and he knows that his father is a generous, kind-hearted man, that perhaps his father would hire him as one of the servants. You see, the prodigal son wasn't returning back home to be a son. The prodigal son was returning back to be a servant, to earn his way back. But we are told that as the younger son was coming, that while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. The father accepted his younger son not as a servant but as a son. We are told in John chapter 3, Nicodemus said, how can I have eternal life? And, and, and Jesus says, you got to be born again. In Ephesians 1, we are told that in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. And then in Romans 8, 14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. When we are saved, one of the things that happens is that the, those of us who are orphans have uh, become adopted back into God's family. You know, one of the, the great joys that my wife and I used to have, and we don't do it as, um, you know, as often or it's difficult for us to do it, is we, we visit new babies uh, when they're born. And I, I look at a lot of the youth kids here, and I, I remember we... Re- remember visiting you at the hospital when you were like days old. You're like this, just that little thing, right? And your, your, your mom and your dad thought you were the most beautiful thing in the world, right? My wife would look, oh, she has such pretty nose. And I say, they all look alike. What are you talking about, right? Um, and And... And those are just great, joyful times. That perhaps one of the more, uh, some of the more memorable times of visit, uh, visiting families when they're welcoming new members into their family, it's not at simply their birth, but at adoptions. Uh, one memorable adoption that uh, that that we were um, kind of got to witness is there was one family. Um, they had a son a biological son, but because of different reasons, they could no longer have any ch- more children. And, and, and so they decided that they would adopt. And for those of you who have been through adoption, you know how emotionally a big roller coaster that is. And um, after uh, a while, they were able to adopt, and they uh, went to Asia, got to see their, uh, the daughter they were to adopt, and um, it was a long process, and they came back and, and wait, 
to wait for the time when the, the paperwork all, would all be finished and when it was done. Um, a caretaker, uh, a, a caregiver would uh, uh, bring this baby girl uh, to America. And this was a while ago. It must have been like 15 years ago. We were, my wife and I were at LAX waiting at the terminal with this family, with a few other relatives. And we were, and, and they were nervous. How is this girl going to do, et cetera? We waited and waited. And it was like two hours after the, the plane arrived, and all the other passengers had gotten out. And where was this baby and this lady? Oh, my gosh, did she, like, run off with our baby, you know? And it took us a while, and then they were... Um, and the person who was coming didn't spe uh, speak English that well either, and so that didn't help. But they were you know, broadcasting messages uh, on the, the PA system. And finally, we, uh, we realized that that person somehow came out and went to a, a adjacent terminal and was sitting there waiting. Right? And this was before cell phones, of course. And when we finally re uh, and got uh, met up with that child, the parents held that little girl in their arms and adored her and loved on her. They eventually went to court and her name was changed so that her last name now reflected the, the name of the mom and dad. She came into their home, uh, ate the food uh, that their parents had prepared, uh, uh, dressed in, in dresses that the parents had prepared, uh, became part of the family, and um, they're no longer at our church. They they've moved away, but I still keep up with them. And if you look at them, and and if you've ever really known like parents who've adopted, you know, it's strange. Like, you think, but they they look like you, they act like you. Um, you just can't tell. You know, I I I, I think about that. Um, a little baby girl, and I think about all the other uh, adopted children that, I, that we know who've grown up into, you know, beautiful people. The day, the moment of adoption, I don't know if you realize, it changed everything in their life. For this particular daughter, she uh, changed countries. She changed family. She changed homes. And what she was going to eat, the music she was going to listen to, the kind of lessons she was going to get, everything changed by a simple act of adoption. That from that moment on, that she had now all the rights of this new family. And so when God looks at us, at one moment in time, we were, we were, at one point in time, we were orphans, spiritual orphans. Because of the decision that our, uh, a, a great ancestor made at one point in time, and really the decisions that we make daily because we thought there was something better than God, than our, the presence of our Father. But when we are saved, when we believe we're adopted into God's home, a second thing that happens when we are saved is not only are you adopted, but you have siblings. You have brothers. You know, when we are adopted, 
we, we change, and one of the, the terms that the Bible uses for Christians, and in fact, uh, when you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the book of Acts, it calls Christians oftentimes disciples, right? We heard that. But do you realize that after the book of Acts, the term disciple isn't really used? But when it's referring to Christians, it uses the term brothers. Brothers. Romans 1.3, I do not want you to be unaware of brothers. Romans 8.2, so then brothers. 8.29, that he might be uh, the firstborn among many brothers. Um, Romans 12.1, I appeal to you therefore brothers. 14.10, why do you pass judgment on your brothers? Or why do you despise your brother? 14.3, therefore let us not pass judgment on any uh, uh, on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or, or hindrance in any way of a brother. In 14.21, uh, it is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. It is interesting. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the book of Acts, the identity of a Christian is tied to whom I am following. I am a disciple. I am a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, when it comes to the church and when Paul's writing to the church, the identity of the Christian is tied to their relationship with other Christians. You are now brothers. Do you realize that when this little girl came into this home, she not only had a set of parents, but she had a brother a brother who would be a part of her life for the rest of her life. Do you realize that? Whether she liked him or not, it, it, he became a part of her life, and she became a part of his life. As a, someone who is saved, we not only are adopted, but we have brothers, we have sisters, and there's a third implication is that we have a home, that you have a home. When Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 3, 15, uh, he says, If I delay, you may know how to um, how one ought to behave in the household of God or the family of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. It says that when we are saved, when we become a Christian, when we have eternal life, when we become a son of God, when we become brothers with others, we are uh, a part of a church family. When that younger son came and that father embraced him and kissed him, he says this to his servant, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoe on his feet feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. It says, put the ring on him. He's not a servant. He's my son. Uh, I killed the fattened calf. He's part of the family we're celebrating. He's accepted into the family. He's not a guest. He's my son. He, let him not sleep out by the servants but let him come inside as part of the family. You know, there's something about a home. It, 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 we feel a little bit more comfortable. This past week, I, I spent uh, three days in Chicago for a conference. Uh, it was a wonderful time, a large conference and, and such. 
And, um, and it was, um, you know, they were very hospitable to me. They put me up at the Sheraton and I, you know, had a room to myself and um, fed me good food. I uh, met with a lot of wonderful leaders. Uh, late at night, we ate Chinese food together and, and talked about theology. And uh, I got a chance to speak, and they were very receptive and all sorts of stuff like that. My, my room, uh, probably the bed is nicer than the bed in my home, and the sheet probably had higher count thread than, than the, you know, the thread counts in my home. I didn't have to do any dishes while I was there, nor did, you know, like, um, I was... You know, there's this little tab, um, little note on the bed saying, if you want to, like, conserve water and help the environment, put this in the front so that, you know, we'll, you know, we won't change your sheet. And I was thinking part of, part of me is like, oh, yeah, I should be environmentally conscious and, and put that on my door. But, you know, how, how often do I get someone to make my bed? So I decided, you know, I'm just going to consciously be bad and uh, the room service, please, right? And... Um, so they, you know, like, uh, I, I, that's one of, you know, love hotels, right? You come in at the end of the day and the sheets, they, they make your bed, right? Uh, and then you have a new set of towels and the whole bed. Um, when you go down to the buffet breakfast, they make you the omelet and, and juice and, and you, you over, I, I, I don't know about you, I overeat. Anytime there's a buffet and there's no financial consequence to what I'm doing, <laughs> I overindulge, Right? Loved all of it, but when all was said and done, uh, late Friday night, I got home, I opened the door, ah, it's home. I can take off my shoe and walk on the ground without feeling like, it's dirty, right? I can sit on my sofa um, turn on the TV, probably a smaller TV than the, what was in the hotel room. Um, I can sit in my dining room with my girls, my wife, and my wife had prepared a meal for me. Um, it, it was just home. It, a home is where you, we just kind of belong and we're, we're connected, that this is where I am meant to be. When we look at the New Testament, it says that what we were at one point in time was we were orphans, we were brotherless, we were homeless. But when we believe, when we uh, are born again, when we put our faith and we confess our, uh, Jesus as Lord, that what happens is that uh, the transformation takes place and we become now a part of a church, which is an extension of God's family, God's home. I don't know if you understand this, but the local church is an outward physical expression of God's home, God's family. And as Christians, we, are, we have the immense blessing and privilege to be a part of it. Let me tell you three things. Three blessings of being or having a church to call home. A church isn't simply a place that you sit down for 75 minutes and are forced to listen to some guy rambling on. You can do that at college, right? And that's what happens. Um, you listen to a professor with a group of people every uh, you know, week, but that's not a church. 
Even if you do it at Biola, that's not a church. It's not a place where you can gather together and, and sing together, uh, you know, cheering something on. Uh, you can do that at the Lakers game. You can worship, the, you know, King LeBron. But that's not a church, right? A church to call home is when you are connected in relationship to other people. You're connected with people who are older. You're connected with people who are younger. You, and listen carefully. You're connected to people you like, and you're also connected to people yeah, you can do without. But that is family, and that's how family is different from friends. If you don't like your friends, you move on. But if you don't like your family, you work it out. A church to call home means you're with people not everyone do you get along with, not everyone do you like see eye to eye, but because they're church family, you say, well, I've got to stay connected to you. As the church grows, you, don't, you can't stay connected or have a relationship with every single one, but you have some people that you're connected to on a regular basis. A church to call home means not only are you connected, but a church to call home means that you, be, uh, you belong and you're accepted. Because this is where you belong. But, you know, being accepted oftentimes and our concept of uh, being accepted is this, that, uh, that they have to accept me no matter what. And the, old, and the father accepted the younger son as he was. And it's true, we accept and we must be accepted within the church simply as who we are. But, listen carefully, Family accepts you for who you are, but they don't allow you to stay who you are. You know, um, my uh, morning ritual, in the morning, I oftentimes um, I get up and I, I get, get on the treadmill, I do 30 minutes or so, and then I take a shower and brush my teeth, shave, and then, and then um, because I, I kind of have short hair now, I started putting gel on, for the, you know, I started doing that a while back. And, you know, I, I don't like to just waste a lot of time. So I have this ritual and I do the gel thing and I move on to the next step and, and then I can start my day. Once in a while, once in a while, I come down all ready for the day. My wife looks at me and goes, you forgot to brush your hair. I mean, you forgot to, yeah, comb your hair. So what I would sometimes do, I would put gel on and then I would just go and and leave for the day, and my hair just a spiky mess. Right? And so my wife or my daughter would see me go, oh, uh, you know, you, you, need, you forgot to brush your hair or comb your hair. A family doesn't, uh, will accept me for my spiky, mess, messy hair, but they don't allow me to stay that way. Now, I don't know what, I, what uh, the people in my office would do if I come one day with just a complete messy set of hair. I don't know what Clyde would do if his boss would show up with messy hair. And I think, I think Clyde would be like, like oh, I don't know if I should say anything. <laughs> Maybe it's a new midlife hairstyle that he's trying on. It looks totally awful, but I'm not going to say anything. All right? That's the difference between family and polite friends. Family accepts you for who you are, but they don't allow you to stay who you are. Polite friends won't accept you for who you are and will remain silent 
when, when there are areas that you need to be told, no, 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 no. You need to look in the mirror. A church to call home is a place where we are connected. A church to call home is when you, where you belong. And thirdly, a church to call home is a place where you become a host and are no longer a guest because it's your home now. You know, periodically we have guests over at our home and uh, my older daughter, she's no longer uh, living at home on a regular basis. She has her apartment now in, in K-Town. Um, but on, periodically when we have guests and she's, when she comes home and um, uh, my, my, my whole family, I guess because, you know, we just, our pastor family, we just all kind of get into this like, you know, mold. Okay, okay, you clean that, you clean that, you, you know, do this, this, that, and go, okay. And they, they just all kind of know. And the... the, the the doorbell rings and go, okay, I'll get that, etc. And then people are eating and things needed to get cleaned up. Uh, my girls will just kind of spring into action, uh, playing the host, welcoming people, you know, putting things away, etc. Once in a while, I will, you know, we'll have guests who say, well, can we help with the dishes? So they'll go into the kitchen and they'll try to help with the dishes and such. And we're grateful for all of that. But I have yet to, okay, you know, and no offense to any of you who've been in my home, I have yet to have a guest who will come to my home, have dinner, and say afterwards, hey, um, let me clean your restroom for you. <laughs> right? Um, I hope you don't mind, but I scrubbed your toilet while you weren't looking. Right? And the reason you don't do that, because, well, I mean, that, that would be awful if we do, because that, yeah, but, um, though, like my girls, I would, we would say, hey, clean the restroom, or put away this or that. The, because my girls, this is their home, and they're acting like hosts. Well, as guests, uh, we feel like you know, there's, a, there's a boundary that I'm supposed to be confined to, and I will receive. As guests, we go into someone's home expecting to receive. As hosts, we live in that space and, and say, you know, there's a purpose that we're inviting people into this space. When we have a church to call home, do you realize that we are saying that I am no longer a guest, but I am a host now? That when the younger son goes back into his uh, father's home and once he's accepted, now he's got to put on... Uh, he's got to say, I'm a part of this family now. And when, when my family has a purpose, when my family has a mission, I will put on my host hat. This past week, our pastoral staff had a, the all-day staff meeting, and one of the things that we did was we printed out a picture directory of all the members of Living Hope. So many of you, know, all of you members, we had pictures um, and we printed out, um, we don't have everyone's pictures, we, we, we realized. And we got into the sanctuary for about 20, 30 minutes, we prayed for all of you. And then afterwards, we went back to the room and said, hey, what were some of your impressions? And someone says, you know, I, 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 we, we're missing a lot of pictures, we need pictures. Others said, I don't know a lot of these people. And I'm the senior pastor, and I know more, peop- I know more people than anybody else on my staff, but I, I didn't know every, even all the members of our church. But one of the observations also we found is this. You know what? Some of these people have been around for years, 20-plus years. Um, and some are new, but 
one of the things we realize is that the vast majority of the members at Living Hope are serving, are playing the host in some way, shape, or form. And there was this deep sense of gratitude that we're on mission together. As the band comes up, I want us to take a minute to, to realize as we begin 2019 that one of the great things that God has given to you is this church called home, this family here. And that we oftentimes take things for granted. But we have a father and we are sons and daughters of his. And we have brothers and sisters and we're connected to people. Sometimes we don't get along, but they're still our brothers and sisters. And together we uh, serve a common purpose, the gospel that goes forward. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord Jesus, I thank you. We thank you that we're in this together and that we serve a great heavenly father, that we uh, have others who uh, come alongside of us, Lord, that we're connected with them, Lord. We thank you for your grace, uh, for your church, your bride. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.